Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. What up, Cash? What's up is that we've pretty much arrived at a new season. A couple days of preseason ball left, or I guess one, one night of preseason ball left. We're sitting here recording this on a Friday morning. And then the season starts next week. So today, you know, we, we talked about how much doing the breakout players and, you know, most important players and stuff like that are some of our favorite episodes of the year as part of our preseason coverage. Well, I think this one is my favorite episode of the year, and it is our bold predictions episode. Some of them will actually be bold. Some of them may be less so. A lot of them will turn out to look really bad like two months from now. But hope springs eternal before any games are played. And that allows us to come up with these bold predictions. Before we do that, a couple things we can talk about off the top. I think you might want to get into some Draymond Green stuff. But before we do that, and before we get into our bold predictions that I know you're all excited to hear, you know, what nonsense Wolfond and I come up with this year. I do actually want to address something that Jeannie Buss recently brought up on the Rich Eisen show. The fact that she just extended Rob Palinka has obviously been met with skepticism and rightfully so. Rob Palinka is basically our new Ernie Grunfeld on this show for those of our uh, oldest listeners. Anyway, Rich Eisen was asking her, you know, about that and and like the inner circle around her that everyone has been talking about now for a couple of years and, and how people are curious about who she's consulting and getting advice from, given her personnel decisions and, you know, the fact she's the owner, she's not the GM or president, so there, she would be getting guidance in, in those decisions. Can I just ask before you reveal what this really exciting tidbit actually is? Yeah. Are you making a habit of, you know, just listening to the Rich Eisen show or you're listening to any Genie no. Bus media no. appearance ju- ju- just to cull some kind <laughs> of like Lakers content? No. It, or it, or does this get aggregated somewhere no, and that's it, where you found it? It popped up on my Twitter feed actually this morning. It was a clip from apparently a couple days ago. I, it, you know, it's not like I listened to it live. It popped on my Twitter feed, a clip from a couple days ago. People were arguing about it. But the story takes a somewhat serious turn because of the way she took it. And the way Jeannie Buss, the direction Jeannie Buss took it is that she got defensive. Okay, fine. Understandably so. And then she insinuated that she believes some of the criticism she receives is because she's a woman. And uh, she asked Eisen not just him, but in general, like if sports media are asking the same questions of male owners like Mark Cuban or Joe Lacob. She also went on about how, you know, this is the way she's always operated. And in the case of Linda Rambis, for example, like she's been a friendly confidant for decades. And Jeannie Buss has been working for the Lakers for decades, as we know. I'm going to be honest. I don't like this. The plight and the, the uphill battle of women in pro sports, I'm completely sympathetic to. Um, and I do believe that whether it's coaching reigns at at the executive level, obviously at the ownership level, the NBA and pro sports in general needs to be more diverse. That includes women. And you're foolish and naive if you believe there aren't some barriers there for women in that world. So I'm not at all disputing the fact there are barriers in place, unfortunately, for women who deserve chances in the world of pro sports and especially in you know male-dominated leagues. But Jeannie Buss making... This specific criticism about the team she's running and owns and like criticisms uh, and questions about her inner circle, making these questions and criticism about that or trying to make it about that, honestly, kind of gross. I think that almost minimizes like the very real 
issues at hand when it does come to that in the sports world. Drawing a line connecting very fair criticisms of her and discrimination in a way among the media. I fu- like that's just to me way too big of a leap for someone who in terms of her actual job deserves criticism. First of all, get your head out of the LA sand and look around pro sports because owners get questioned all the time, including with respect to where they're getting advice from or, you know, whether they're accepting any advice at all within the NBA alone. How many times have we clowned Ted Leonsis for the Ernie Grunfeld stuff, James Dolan for just being James Dolan, Vivek Ranadive, like the list goes on. The Lakers, as I've stated many times now, have almost become Nick's West under Jeannie Buss's watch. And she seems far too happy to keep the people who helped her run the team into the ground employed, Ron Palinka, chief among them. Like him lasting this long was suspect enough. Now getting an extension is basketball buffoonery. That's why your decision making and the inner circle around you are being questioned and nothing else. And with respect to her comment about like, well, she doesn't even understand why people are so curious about the inner circle thing because this is always how she's done things and these are always the people she's had around her. Yeah, except that all changed when you became the absolute top boss at the franchise. Like, you know, what you were doing in the 80s and 90s when you had different roles with the franchise, fine, but like the questions are going to change when you're now the top person and your track record in that specific chair, like the ultimate franchise throne isn't good. So maybe it's time to reevaluate how you do things and that inner circle and not just say, well, I don't know why everyone's asking me these questions. Like this has been my decision-making circle for 30 years. Well, it's like, yeah, but you didn't have the ultimate say 30 years ago and the Lakers weren't a joke 30 years ago. So anyway, that's my piece on that. I wanted to address it because I fully acknowledge that and you know this on this show, I've probably criticized Jeannie Buzz's handling of the Lakers as much as anyone And then to kind of see her make it seem like a lot of the questions asked of her aren't asked of male owners, I just, I push back on that. Because as someone that does criticize her a lot, I can promise you it has nothing to do with the fact that she is a woman and everything to do with the fact that I don't think she's done a good job. I just don't want those lines blurred because you can, like, there are people like me who fully acknowledge we need more diversity in, like, the higher-ups in pro sports, and that includes women, and acknowledge the barriers in front of them, but also acknowledge Jeannie Buss has been bad at the job. And I just don't think that those lines should be blurred with respect to this specific situation. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious deflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, that doesn't invalidate the broader point. I think, you know, something that we've said in the past when, say, Kyrie Irving might accidentally stumble into a good point is like focus on the message and not the messenger. And I think, you know, to your point about she owns the Lakers because her dad owned the Lakers before her, you know? So it's right. not, it's not necessarily been like this huge uphill climb for her to get to where she's gotten to. And that's, and that's not to take away from, you know, certainly all the hard work that she's had to put in, in order to, you know, whatever you want to say about the job she's done there, like she has taken ownership of the team and she has run it suitably. Like they won a championship, what, two years ago? Like that's, mm-hmm. You know, let's not totally lose sight of that. We've talked a lot about Lakers cronyism and how for a while it seemed, you know, that was like very embedded in the fabric of Lakers culture and Lakers exceptionalism. And they have their people and they take care of their people. And their GM was Kobe's agent. And (laughs) like, it's, it's part of it. Like, and it's not, it's not doing the franchise any favors at this point in time, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, we, we don't need to give this any more attention I don't think than it merits I think it's just she's deflecting because 
she's in a tough spot. The franchise is in a tough spot. Uh, I, I'm actually surprised I didn't bring that up with you, the, the Polinka thing, because I knew you'd have a lot to say about it, the fact that they well, extended him. To but... be honest with you, I was that was one of the notes I, w- I had put in for when we do our next pod. I was going to bring it up. And then I, this actually just, like I said, I saw it on Twitter this morning, and I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna I'm about to rip the Lakers as a whole for doing this. She's the ultimate decision maker. I've ripped her before. And now there's this clip out there of her saying, you know, she feels some of the criticism is unfair because she's a woman and that, you know, we aren't asking the same questions of male owners. And so based on the fact I saw that, I just felt, well, if I know that clip, like she said that in recent days and that exists and I'm about to go and rip her for the Plinka thing. I just felt like I didn't want to ignore the fact that I had seen that she had said that and give my thoughts on it. Yeah. And I think, look, almost certainly true that, she has faced more vitriol, more scrutiny, like has been treated less fairly than male owners in the NBA. Like, I think that's a probably a hundred percent true. So both things can be true. Like it can be a deflection that is like a little bit disingenuous. And she can also be making a point that holds some water. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's really all I have to say about that. I don't think we need to yeah. give the Lakers franchise any more airtime than they deserve when we're talking about an NBA season in which I don't really think they're going to be a significant factor. I don't know. I think they can be the 17th best team. Well, I think you have some Draymond Green thoughts before we get into no, the I, Well, I want to know what you thought because we, we talked a, a lot about this on the last episode and we were sort of bandying about different ways, I guess, that we thought the situation could resolve itself. Did you expect that he would be back rejoining the team without an actual suspension as quickly as it's happened. No, like rejoin the team as quickly, maybe, but without a suspension in between. No, like, I don't know. I, Cause I know a lot of people have also said, well, it was far fetched to assume they'd actually like suspend him for opening night. I don't think it's that far fetched to have assumed that. Like he punched a guy in the face <laughs> at practice. I thought he should have been given a game. I guess at the end of the day, you know, if, and I don't know this. We're not there. Like if Jordan Poole, they, they, you know, they said Jordan Poole was obviously consulted on all this and also Poole and Draymond have now met and, mm-hmm. you know, made up as much as that can be possible so quickly after such an incident. But if that is true and, and Jordan Poole is actually like just completely cool now, like ready to move forward and, and the franchise looks at it as like, look, you know, the, the West is going to be tough again. Every game matters. There's really like nothing to be served from – Draymond sitting out if we feel we've moved past this I don't know I guess it's almost like like, who am I to say well no you're wrong like doesn't matter what Jordan Poole says you should punish him further I can't really say that but it is surprising that he punched his teammate in the face and didn't even get a game for it well I mean I think to that point you just hope that 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 was entirely coming from Jordan Poole's side of things when you know, as opposed to say the team pressuring Jordan Poole and being like, "Look, you got to get over this because Draymond's yeah. coming back, whether you like it or not." If it was the former, which it seems to have been, I know Steve Kerr mentioned that that Poole was a huge part of this, and obviously he would have to be um, because of all the things we talked about last episode about how, given the stages that they're at in their careers, if it came down to it, if Jordan Poole was like, "I am not playing with this dude; it's him or me." then they would be out there looking for Draymond Green trades right now, right? Like, that's... They would have to. Yeah. So, 
I think he obviously had to be a part of the solution here. And I've seen a lot of people being like, this is unacceptable. You know, he punched a teammate. Like, you can't not suspend him. But if Jordan Poole is saying, no, it's okay, we're cool, uh, then I, I'm okay with that. I mean, it's yeah. like the idea of restorative justice, right? Like, you, yeah. kinda, you you go to the victim and you're like, you know, what, is, what does a resolution look like for you in this situation? And if in this situation, Jordan Poole is saying that looks like us sitting down, hashing it out, having a conversation getting to a place where I feel like we can move forward and we can play together, then yeah, I'm fine with him being back on opening night and being part of ring ceremony. Absolutely. Then kudos to them, I guess, for moving past it. And you would think, I don't know. We talked, you said when I asked you uh, last week, if you thought it was, if, if you thought it was something that was going to linger throughout the season, uh, does, does this resolution change that feeling for you? Do you now no longer feel that way? Or you still think it's going to be, I still think it's going to linger, man. I still think it's going to linger like because you know why I still think it's going to linger because the reported root of it all is still going to linger like they can get past the punch or what you know this like that specific moment but if the reports are all true and the root of this of everything that went down that day and the frustration is still about the money and the extensions well that's not going to change. If anything, the only thing that's going to change, Jordan Poole's extension is coming any day now, and Draymond Green's is not. And the questions aren't going to go away. Like, that kind of cloud isn't going to go away. So I find it hard to believe that something that bubbled up enough to cause something like this to happen in the first week of the preseason, when the the actual situation isn't going to be resolved, really, in the way Draymond Green wants it resolved... And that caused issues in the first week of the preseason. I find it hard to believe that then they can just completely bury it and move past it. And it won't linger over the course of a season that they once again hope lasts eight months, you know? Yeah. Unless, you know, Draymond, in the wake of this incident, comes to the realization that like, oh, wow, maybe I'm hanging on by a thinner thread than I initially thought. And the best thing that I can do right now is just put my head down and prove how valuable I still am to this team and make it impossible for them to not give me a contract extension or re-sign me if I opt out of my contract at the end of the season. So I don't really know. It could get, it could go, I guess, any number of ways, but I kind of have a feeling that ultimately this isn't going to derail the Warriors. I feel like we can leave that there. And yeah, I, th- I think we can get to these bold predictions. Can't wait for them. You start us off. What is your first bold prediction of the 2022-2023 season? We've talked about it before. I know that you disagree, so I think it's a great place for us to start. Sacramento Kings will All be right. playing postseason basketball this year. Does that mean they will make the playoffs proper? Not saying that. So you're saying no- So you're saying they'll be a play-in team? They will be a play-in team at least, yes. So you're saying they and, they finish somewhere between seventh to tenth. That's all you're gonna. That's as far as this prediction goes. But it could be as high as seventh. Yeah, but I'm not. Don't hold all me right. to that. I'm just saying <laughs> that they're gonna be in the play-in or right. or better. All right. Uh, but at the least, once the regular season ends, there will be at least one more game on the docket for the Sacramento Kings. And um, they will hang. Like a we always say they'll 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 hang a banner. By the way, I, I just want to make a quick point about that. Like the the Kings, the notion of the Kings, which we always talk about in like these like farcical, ridiculous terms. Like they they make the play in. You know, one of ten teams 
out of 15 in the conference. Yeah. Literally two-thirds of the league gets to yeah. play postseason games, and they get to do this for the first time in, what's it been now? Well, it will have been years. 17 years. Yeah, Our beloved Toronto Blue Jays that lost in the wild card round last weekend in just comically excruciating fashion. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, having like been at the Dome a couple yep, of times. Yeah, I've noticed. Year. I know exactly where you're going with this. A 2020 banner is hanging at the Rogers Center. And this was a season, a 60-game season, pandemic-shortened 60-game season, in which the playoff field was expanded to eight teams. 16 total for the league. So basically, it'd be an NBA or NHL team hanging a We Made the Playoffs banner. That's literally what it is. They made the playoffs as a seven seed in the American League. A season in which they wouldn't have made the... They wouldn't have made the playoffs in any other season in Major League history. They went to a best of three wild card round that year, lost two nothing, and hung a banner. Yeah, which leads me to believe that they're going to hang another one for this season, in which they did basically the same thing, like snuck into the wild card and lost in two games, yeah. didn't win a single game. Like that's embarrassing. Come on, do no. better. It is, and and yeah, I, I get where you're going with this because it's like full disclosure. Like we're making fun of the Kings for doing it. Well, you know, FYI, Wolf and I, he root for a team that literally just did what we clowned the Kings for maybe doing. I guess for for those you know basketball heads listening that like just aren't baseball fans at all, the one thing I'll say like the tradition of of baseball and like making the playoffs in baseball because of how exclusive it used to be, whether it was. Back in the old days were literally two teams, like the playoffs was just the World Series or even, you know, up until the early mid 90s when the only teams that made the playoffs were ones that won the four divisions and they went straight to the league championship, the the equivalent of like the conference finals. Even after that, when they first expanded to the wild card, it was still only eight of 30, right? The first expansion of the wild card, even 10 of 30, one third of the league, like less than any of the other major sports. So, like, so much of the tradition of baseball and, like, hanging banners when you made the playoffs was because if you made the playoffs, it was something. You either won your division or you won the pennant or whatever, or even making it as a wild card, you know, up until a certain point, you were still part of, like, the upper third of the league. That's also why, like, you know, a lot – because I see a lot of even, like, basketball people I interact with on Twitter that aren't baseball fans – clowning like the the celebrations in baseball you know in most other pro sports you maybe do the champagne sally maybe when you get to the finals but usually only if you win the championship in baseball like they do it when they make the playoffs they do it when they win the wild they literally do it for every like a step along the way but again because the tradition from like in baseball stems from the fact that they started doing this at a time when making the playoffs meant you were going to the world series or you were within three or four wins of the world series all of which is to say that needs to go now because they're now at the point where like 12 of 30 make it and okay, it's still pretty exclusive, but maybe like save the champagne shower at the very least until you, maybe if you win the wild card round and you at least book your spot in AL or NLDS, or unless you have clinched a top two seed during the regular season, then pop it. Cause again, same thing. You've secured your trip to the final eight, but the champagne sellies, just to like clinch your spot in a best two out of three first round. Not really feeling it. Hanging banners just for making the wild card round. Definitely not feeling it. And I especially not feeling it if the Jays do it after this year. Anyway, that's like three minutes of a baseball rant. People definitely did not tune into this show to listen to. Uh, no, I apologize, but I really felt like I had to get that off my chest because uh, I didn't know it was there because I hadn't been to the Dome 
in a really long time. And so going and seeing that banner hanging there made me irrationally angry. Uh, okay, back to the Kings. Again, the concern with them is the defense, right? Mm-hmm. And that's if anything's going to derail in this season, that's what's going to do it. But I still think the offense is going to be good enough to keep them kind of hovering around 500. And like we've said, they only have to be better than one team, basically, because we know they're going to be better than the Jazz, Spurs, Thunder, and Rockets. So, like, really, they just need to be better than the Blazers, which I think that they will be. Again, I've, I've talked about the offensive fit with all the pieces. I really like it, D- despite the fact that, you know, having your two best offensive players not really be floor spacers. Uh, I think we've seen teams be able to work around that if the complementary pieces are right. And I do think that's the case here. Like, I think they have enough shooting. Uh, I've mentioned how I think they're going to play at this, like, really fast pace that's going to help alleviate some of the half-court concerns. And, you know, apart from that, in spite of the fact that neither one of them is, like, a real three-point threat, I don't think that means that the the two-man game between Fox and Sabonis is not going to be very potent because of Fox's speed and ability to collapse a defense with his drives. Uh, and, you know, both of those guys are really strong passers. You know, I think they'll work the dribble handoff game and like with a spread floor around them. I do think that's going to be a top 10 offense. And between like like Herder, Monk, Keegan Murray, offensively, I really like the setup there and the pieces they put around those two guys. So I think the, the offense will be good enough to offset some inevitable defensive issues. And I, I think we said it on this pod, the over-under, that you went under and I went over. We said 37 and a half, right? Yeah, that was our own uh, win total line for right. them and I went under. That was because at the time I hadn't actually checked. So we were just setting our own line where we thought it would it's... be fair to set it. And then I, w- I went and saw, like I think it was like 32 and a half some places, maybe 30. Yeah, I would go over that. Whether it's the Blazers they beat out, like maybe it's even the Lakers they beat out. I think they're going to be in the top 10. And that may not seem like a bold prediction, <laughs> picking a team... Slated to finish 11th. (laughs) But I just think when we're talking about the Kings and we're talking about them playing postseason games, it is bold. And uh, so I'm going to stand by and stand by my Kings optimism. Also, as we've discussed, like in in previous years, like we call these bold predictions, but they don't even necessarily have to be that bold. Like the reason we just did it in this format was to avoid us doing the very standard preseason preview pod where it's just like who is your eastern conference pick who is your mvp pick and we we did it this way so it was like different predictions but they don't have to be that bold i'll give you that it's going to come down to the kings and blazers for that 10th spot that's how i would prognosticate it right now i think they're pretty close based on the kings i i do think they're an improved team the blazers will be much better than they were last year I think it'd be a pretty even matchup over the course of 82 games. But if I had to pick one, I would pick the Blazers by a hair simply because between the two teams, what do I trust most? And that's Dame. What or who do I trust most? And that's Dame. So I'd give the edge to the Blazers in that fight. Um, and then honestly, just for the LOLs, I like I almost wanted to make one of my bold predictions that one of the Thunder, Jazz, Rockets, or Spurs will finish ahead of the Kings. But we're not. <laughs> I, I didn't do that. So let's get to my first bold prediction. The New Orleans Pelicans will have the top-ranked offense in the NBA. Again, maybe that's not even that bold because with CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram both in the lineup last season, the Pels scored at a rate more than 116 points per 100 possessions that would have bested Utah's top-ranked offense last season 
And now they're going to add Zion Williamson to that. The guy who is the only player in league history to average 25 plus on 60% plus true shooting. They're going to add him to the offense that looked like the best offense in the league to finish last season. Plus, you know, I've talked a lot about their shooting woes and this and that. Like, I think, I don't think they're going to be a great three-point shooting team from a volume perspective, but I do think they'll be much better than they've been in recent years. They can't not be, given that it's going to be a full season of CJ and also just the continued development of Trigger Trey Murphy, who was one of my breakout candidates last week. Even if you just look at the preseason, I know we don't want to read too much in the preseason, but a great shooter, you know, historically has now gone 13 of 23 from deep in the preseason. Trey Murphy is ready to let it fire for a team that I think will take at least a bit more threes and will complement just their devastating in the ar- inside the arc game with a little bit more three-point shooting. And again, based on the way they finished last season and the way this roster is built and how devastating they are inside, they don't even need to be a great three-point shooting team. If they just up the volume a little bit and everything else is the same as last year with Zion in there, they are the best offense in the league. And I think they will be. And I think it's important to note, like you wouldn't think of Zion coming back and think, oh, wow, that's really going to goose mm-hmm. the Pelicans' three-point attempt rate. But we have seen, you know, and I don't want to compare Zion to Giannis necessarily, but like we have seen how a dominant interior scorer who can also really pass can create a, an offensive environment in which the rest of the team is getting a lot of clean catch-and-shoot threes, right? And, you know, the Pelicans aren't, you know, set up necessarily the way that the Bucks are. And also it would require a bit of a shift uh, in terms of like schematics. But I do think even though Zion himself is not a three-point shooter, his being there could create a lot more opportunities for the guys around him. So yeah, I think, and I think I've said before, like I, I see them if they stay healthy as like a surefire top five offense. So this tracks to me 100%. And I think... <clears throat> especially in terms of offensive rebounding, like between Mm -hmm. Zion and JV and Jackson Hayes. And like, I mean, they were, they they were in the upper echelon of offensive rebounding last year as it was. And then you get Zion in there with that preposterous second jump. And I think there's a chance him and JV are just going to play volleyball on the offensive glass all year. Like, I think they will be the number one offensive rebounding team in the league. And that's just going to compound their offensive efficiency that much more. So uh, I could totally see this happening. Cool. What's what's your next one? All right. So I, I have one that's kind of like a joint prediction because I don't think either of these things on their own okay. is particularly bold. So are but these think, like your number two and three or they're just, just number one, two? Just okay, one. Okay. And I, I joined them together because I didn't think either of them on their own was bold enough. Okay. But together, I feel like they are. So I think Joel Embiid's going to win MVP after okay. finishing runner-up the last two years. I feel like he finally breaks through this year. Okay. And the Philadelphia 76ers... For the first time since 2001, are going to break through and make at least the conference finals. And I will tell you, I was very close to just outright picking them to win the East. And I couldn't quite get there, even on a bold predictions episode, because the the trust issues I feel like we've run seen a too we've bit, seen too much. Run a little bit too deep. But I'm just like I was thinking to myself, if I was to strip out that kind of baggage let's say and just look at all the rosters in the eastern conference based on who do i think these players actually are you know not necessarily the the unfortunate moments 
that I've seen them experience uh, in postseasons past or the injury history, anything like that. Like in a vacuum, I'm looking at these rosters. Who do I think has the best roster? I kind of think it's Philly. And so I don't know if that's enough for them to actually win the East because of all the baggage that we've mentioned so many times. But I do think it should be good enough to finally get them over that second round hump. And, you know, in spite of whatever James Harden may be at this point in his career, I think Maxi looks very ready to pick up any slack that there might be on account of any James Harden decline, at least as a scorer, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like Harden can comfortably ease into this new playmaking role where Maxi is ready to be the number two scorer on that team. They have real depth for the first time in eons, it feels like. And I think in spite of some of the defensive concerns, you know, with, with Maxi and Harden at the point of attack, I think they have just enough insulation for those guys uh, between, you know, Embiid, Tucker, and PJ Tucker just like wins everywhere he goes, you know, know. at this point of his career too. Like he just plugs so many holes for so many different teams Um, between Embiid, Tucker, you know, Thibel when he's able to stay on the floor, I guess, Melton house, like they have, they have the pieces to do this. So that's my prediction. They're getting to the conference finals. I know you like to cite the stat in spite of the Kings playoff drought. They've still been in the conference finals more recently than the Sixers have. Yep. And I think that's going to end this year. I feel like Philly gets there. Look, I mean, I don't have much to add to this. Embiid's been, regular season at least, like the second best player in the league the last, you know, two plus seasons now. So for sure, I can see him winning MVP. Like he's clearly good enough to do it. And he's good enough to be the best player on a championship level team. He will have to be more consistent in the biggest games, I'll say there, he's, I, you know, he's upped his play in terms of like playoffs in general and all that, like the last couple of years, but I'd still say consistency in the biggest games. There's like a tick more. I think you can get from Embiid there. That'll help James Harden, even though I don't think he'll ever be like MVP James Harden again, unrealistic at the stage of his career. I do think he'll be better than he was at the end of last season. Maxi, we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum, how much we both believe in his continued upward trajectory. So, like, you start putting it all together. They have Tucker now. Melton was a great pickup. They've got depth. Like, if you don't want to talk about anything except what they have this season and what they can be as a basketball team, there's no reason to doubt them as a 100% bona fide championship contender. As you noted, though, those trust issues are very real and they run very deep. And we have seen too much from this team and also from like the, some of the different individuals on this team for me to like go all the way there. And so I do still envision them losing in the second round. But yeah, I mean, obviously they, they can get to the conference finals and 100% Embiid, you know, they, they're built also to win a ton of regular season games again. So Embiid very much, you know, just has another year similar to the last two years and they do what they can or should do on the, Like he'll be right there again in the MVP yeah. mix. Part of that for me was I think that they have a really good chance of being the number one seed. In the yeah. East. And I think that's what is going to put Embiid over the top as an MVP candidate um, because he's been right there. Like maybe not so much last year, but like two years ago, for sure. He was like neck and neck with Jokic until he missed a bunch of games. And I know that's kind of a recurring thing with Embiid, but um, at least in the regular season, I feel like health hasn't been as much of an issue for him right. recently as it was early in his career. Obviously, last postseason was a different story. Yeah. And eventually, he's got to get through a postseason relatively healthy, right? I know like nobody is fully healthy that time of year, but 
the extent to which these freak injuries just somehow find a way to waylay him and the Sixers year after year right. after year is, I mean, it's hard to ignore. Yeah, um, and that that's like something I've stressed before too. Like even outside of me talking about his actual performance in some elimination games and stuff like that when the team's back's against the wall, even just like how dependable he is in the playoffs. Like I fully recognize that a lot of this stuff has been more like freak injury. T- it's not even necessarily like, oh, look, he's a big guy. He wears down in the play. Like, I acknowledge that a lot of it, it's not like his fault where it's like, oh, he should be in better shape or anything. But at a certain point, even if they all seem kind of freakish, it's like, like at what point do we just say, like, man, this guy just can't stay healthy. Whether it's bad luck or whether it is condition, like whatever it is, how often does it have to happen before we just say like, yeah, he's injury prone. It's not necessarily his own fault. He just is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to parse it because like right. I look at last year and it's like some freak injury where he tears a thumb ligament. Pascal Siakam, like at the tail end of a blowout, basically elbows him accidentally in the face and breaks his orbital bone and gives him a concussion. It's like, right. I don't know what to make of that. Like that's that's not Embiid being injury prone. Like I, right. you know, there's not some cosmic force, I don't think, that's making him a magnet for these kind of freak right. plays. But we'll we'll see how this season goes, and I'm hoping for his sake and for the sake of Sixers fans everywhere that we finally get to see something resembling a healthy postseason yep. from Joel Embiid. I feel like we deserve that as basketball fans. Well, this is a great segue on a couple fronts because my next bold prediction, and I think by far the boldest one we put out there yet, which is, you know, to translate that, the least likely of the four we've put out thus far, <laughs> Pascal Siakam finishes top five in MVP voting. Uh, okay, make your case. So last season, everyone knows he came back uh, from missing, what, the first month-ish of the season, recovering from shoulder surgery, started to get going again, gets COVID for a second time, slows down again, and then really starts to pick up and look like the Pascal Siakam of old and better, like, and then some in early January, around the, the turn of the calendar. And from that point on, he plays 52 games. And over those 52 games, averages roughly 24 points, nine rebounds, and six assists on 57% true shooting, while for the most part getting back to playing his brand of like frenetic game-changing defense. Based on how he finished last season, based on the fact that this is going to be honestly like the first time in three years he's starting a season fully healthy and looks ready to hit the ground running from the start of the season. Put those things together. I think he's ready to have a career year. And I also think that this Raptors team, while the same questions will come up in the playoffs... I think between the continuity and what they have, they're actually built to win a ton of regular season games. And I can see them challenging for like a top two seed in the East. And I think if Pascal Siakam is literally what he was at his best to finish last season for a team that wins, that could win like into the mid fifties, if things really break right for them and he continues to play defense the way he started to play it again at the end of last season, I think you put all those things together. I think he's going to end up not, in the real MVP race, you know what I mean? Like he's not getting first he's gonna place. He's going to be first. that guy that over the course of the season, people are like, well, he has to be in the conversation. Right, and he ends up in like fifth on the ballot or maybe fourth. But I do think that is somewhat bold. You know, I, I don't know how many, like Pascal Siakam said himself immediately that he wants to be a top five player in the NBA. A lot of people laughed at that. I'm not even saying he's going to be a top five player this season. I'm strictly saying he's going to end up top five on the MVP ballot. Yeah, so I think where we disagree is I just don't think even in the regular season that the Raptors ceiling is that high. Like I don't see, I mean, again, there are a bunch of teams where you could say if everything breaks right for them, you know, they could win, you know, mid fifties games. 
So I suppose that's true for Toronto as well. But I just, I mean, we, I've said on this pod before, I think they have some underachieving potential just because of the holes on the roster that went unaddressed this past offseason and a lot of the same limitations from last year presenting themselves again in a conference that got much better and in a, a league that has seen them play their kind of, uh, I, I don't really even know how to describe it, but like their their helter-skelter defense, like all the different ways that they tried to win the the possession battle last year, just like the various feats of engineering required to get them to 48 wins last year <laughs> might be difficult to replicate. I don't know that I see this big leap coming from them. And I think if they wind up, you know, even if they just do exactly what they did last year and win 48 games again, I don't know that that's enough to nudge Pascal. And no, that, that would not be enough. That would um, not be enough. So that's, that's why I'm not quite there with him. Um, and I'm also just like looking around and thinking like, okay, Embiid, Giannis, Jokic, uh, Luka, Luka. That's, that's four names right there that I don't think Siakam's going to be able to beat out. Yeah. And then you got Steph, KD, uh, yeah, Zion. Um, who else is out there? Trey, like Tatum. I don't know. It's, it's very tough to, yeah. to see him getting into that mix. But uh, that's You know what I'd call it? They call them bold predictions. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Give me, give me your third one. I think after decades of Eastern Conference jokes, and I know this has been happening for a while, and we've talked about how the Eastern Conference is as deep as it's been in a dog's age. But this year, I think to get out of the play-in mix, to be a top six team in the East is going to take 50 or more wins. I think wow. all six of those teams are going to be 50-win teams. I like it. And... This just kind of hit me when we were doing our real, real, you know, our, sorry, real quick to interrupt you. Do you remember in uh, was it 08 or 09 when the eighth seed in the West got to 50 wins? I do. Yeah, it was the it, it happened twice actually. There was one year when I think the Nuggets were the eighth seed. They won 50, and that was the year the Warriors missed out as like a 48 win team. Right. And then a couple years later, the Thunder, the first year that they made the playoffs were a 50-win eighth seed as well. Yeah, I don't think the top eight in the East is going to be all 50-win teams, but I do think the top six will be. This hit me when we were doing our annual, you know, preseason exercise where we kind of make the case for and against various contenders and fringe contenders. And I was going through the list of the teams that I have sort of considered fringe contenders in the East. And man, there's a lot of good teams in the conference, you know? And, And I basically, because my word count on that piece was getting so unwieldy. I had to cut a team and the team I wound up cutting was the Atlanta Hawks just because like, I I think the Hawks have a chance to be really good, but to me, they were kind of the fringiest of those fringe contenders. And it kind of hurt me to cut them because I like, I, I think in a best case scenario, they could be a 50 plus win team. That is like maybe challenging to make the conference finals. Like I think they, in most years that translates to they're the top tier of the East. Yeah. And it's funny. Like, so I was expecting to get like a bunch of backlash people saying like, how could you leave the Hawks off this list? I, I didn't see one comment lobbying for the Hawks to be in that. That might also be though, because there aren't any Hawks fans. (laughs) I hope that's not the case because they have a really fun, exciting young team, but certainly heard from a lot of Bulls fans who are outraged that the Bulls weren't in that mix. And look, I I could see a scenario very easily where the Bulls wind up, you know, winning mid forties games again. And, you know, wherever that puts them in the East, I don't know, but I just, and, and also like, I thought the Bulls were 
really good last year when they were healthy. Mm. Like, I don't think the team they were by the end of the year is representative of the, uh, of like the quality of the team when they were at full strength at all. Yeah. But I don't think they're making the playoffs this year. Play in. They'll be in the play in. I think they yeah. lose in the play in. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so as well. And that's, that's a shame because they are yeah. a talented team, but like you have Levine coming off a knee surgery. You Lonzo. have Lonzo who, who knows when we're going to see him again. Uh, I think DeRozan's going to be really hard pressed to replicate what he did in a career year last season. And it's tough, man. Like without Lonzo, I just don't think Caruso can hold that defense together by himself. You know, him and Pat Williams, I guess, who's still largely unproven. Um, But they're still a good team, you know, like DeRozan and Levine is still a really good backcourt. And I'm really high on Io Dasunmu. And, you know, I love Caruso and Vucevic maybe has a bounce back year in him. But I just there's just so much quality in the East right now that I don't think that's going to be good enough to to get them into the playoffs proper. So, um, yeah, I think ultimately when we look at those top six teams at the end of the year, I think they're all going to be 50 win teams or better. I like it. And I could see it happening because the East is, I think last year, like I talked about the East being deeper than it's been in like a quarter century. And I think this year it's even better. Like last year was about depth and the top por- like the top portion of the East was good last year, but I think the best teams in the East are even better this year. And I think the middle got better. So I think it's like just as deep, but also the top end talent is better. Like, or the ceiling for a lot of these teams is better. So yeah, I, and that'd be fun as hell if the East has like a race like that. I mean, it'd be depressing as hell if they were like a 48 win team and end up having to go to the play-in, but you know, such as life uh, after being in a, con- enjoying the benefits of a conference for where for the longest time, like 38 wins got you two home playoff games and all the revenue that came with it. Um, all right. You know what? We're five tenths of the way there we're halfway there through our bold predictions so let's take that break and come back and i'll give you my third bold prediction what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfond, my third bold prediction, maybe not that bold if you've watched them play in the preseason, the Charlotte Hornets, after going 43-39 last year, finish with 55-plus losses and potentially like a bottom four, bottom five record in the league, I think they challenge for the worst record in the Eastern Conference, even with those likely tanking Indiana Pacers. I mentioned 43 wins last season. The two years of the LaMelo era, one was the uh, pandemic short season, but if you average it out, they've averaged 40.5 wins per 82 games in the LaMelo era. So they've been essentially a 500 team for two years now. They overachieved and went 43 and 39 last year. And yet here I am saying they won't win more than 27 games LaMelo is already dealing with this grade two ankle sprain. You hope he comes back relatively soon and looks like himself, but ankle sprains, especially once you get into the grade two, grade three territory, obviously very tricky for basketball players and for point guards and and a guy who relies on that kind of burst. So already concerning in and of itself, they're going to start the season without their by far best player. Honestly, then once you get past that, like the roster around them is pretty suspect and no, it's awful. It's awful. Right. Suspect is being kind. So you take LaMelo out of it. They're probably going to get buried 
very early. If LaMelo misses like even weeks, let alone months, like a month to start the season, they could get buried early in an Eastern Conference that we just acknowledged might have six plus 50 win teams where you're probably going to be in the you know early to mid 40s to even get into the play-in. And if they have one of these starts where they're like one in 10 or something, which they very well could be without LaMelo, I think it'll kind of spiral downhill very quickly. They'll probably be very happy at that point to just get in the tanking mix for Wembenyama and Scoot Henderson and all these other guys. And I think it'll like snowball very quickly. Also, obviously, Miles Bridges should not be there, does not deserve an NBA job right now. But strictly from a team performance perspective, there is obviously a big hole from performance-wise what he gave them last season that they're clearly not going to fill this year. So you start putting it all together. Like, this team's bad, man. They are way, way worse than even a 43-win team, you know, indicates from last season. Also, and this is the second time I'm, like, going with the, you know, maybe we don't put too much in the preseason caveat, but still, in the preseason so far, 0-5 with a minus 17.8 point differential, which again, I think for the most part, you don't read too much in the preseason, but here and there, I do think there are times when like you can look at it. And I think that is a product of even among preseason competition, you take LaMelo out of the mix. They just don't have enough like top end NBA talent. So even in the preseason, when teams are playing, you know, 15 to 20 guys over the course of the preseason, when the Hornets start going deeper into that roster and depth, it's terrible. And you're seeing that because they're just getting shellacked every night in the preseason. And okay, it's not going to be 0-82 with like a minus 18 point differential, but it's going to be pretty damn bad. Yeah. That's why I think you're being way too conservative on a bold predictions. Episode. I should have gone 60. They're going to lose 60. Go 65, man. We're wow. Being bold they're going like- to be the worst team of all time. They're going 8-74. and 74. I mean, think about it. Like if they come out of the gate and LaMelo is on the shelf and they just get off to this brutal start. And it's just clear, you know, let's say it's clear by by January that they just have no shot of getting into even the play-in mix. Like, at that point, what what rationale would there be for them going hard and trying to win any games? Like, I, and obviously they will because they're professionals and they're coached by Steve Clifford again somehow. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I hope for his sanity like we know he's had to step away from the game in the past because it's yeah. really affected his health so i hope he's just going into this season with low expectations so that he doesn't put too much pressure on himself because again like you said they lack top end talent i feel like they lack mid end talent like there's just <laughs> they lack talent especially because you know like hayward is like a lock to miss 25 games right he just is yeah, man, I would say if we're being bold, worst team in the East, 65 losses. Let's go with that because I, I, I did actually pick them as the worst starts, team they'll just, go straight, they'll just go straight into the tank. Yeah. Um, and I also want to say, like, I, I've seen a lot of people talk about the Hornets and not even mention Miles Bridges. And I understand why, like, the, the tragedy of the Miles Bridges situation is not that the Hornets no longer have right. the services of, of, a, course. of, a, of, of course. a rising young player. But... If we're talking about the Hornets' outlook, it's just kind of hard to ignore the fact that their second-best player is not on the team anymore. Right. Like, that's obviously going to affect them significantly. Yeah. And then, yeah, you take LaMelo out of the mix with an injury that they're going to be careful about not worsening. And, you know, arguably their third-best player in Hayward, who is 
certain to miss time with some injury yeah. or other. And I just, there's really not a lot here. So, yeah. you know, why not just give their young players a, a chance to to spread their wings and maybe look to trade somebody like PJ Washington or Terry Rozier and just see what they can get back for those guys and go straight into the tank. Yeah, spread their wings so that they can uh, welcome the wingspan of Victor Wemanyama. Exactly. Um, okay, I like that one. Question number four for you. So going in the complete opposite direction, from the bottom of one com- conference to the top of the other, the number one seed this year in the Western Conference is going to be... Can I guess what your prediction is going to be? You can. Oh, so now uh, I was going to say the Denver Nuggets, but now I'm wondering if your bold prediction is going to say Pelicans. A different Northwest team, though. Not the Nuggets, but the Minnesota Timberwolves. Wow. The number one seed. Okay, this is bold. I like it. They've got talent on both sides of the ball. I I really like their two-way balance. Gobert is one of the best regular season floor raisers in the entire league. Him and Towns complement each other really well in the front court for all the reasons that we've talked about, you know, ever since they made that trade, just because... Towns offensively covers for a lot of Gobert's weaknesses on that side of the ball. Gobert defensively covers for a lot of Towns' weaknesses yep. on that side of the ball. Um, you know, we breakout candidate Jalen Noel. <laughs> Jalen Noel. Uh, I think yeah, you were calling him Noel on the last episode. I think is it's it Noel. actually Noel? Oh, I know it's sure spelled it's with two L's, like well, but I I thought I always thought I heard him. Sit, yeah, I'm almost certain it's Noel. Noel. In any case, right. yeah. Breakout candidate, Jalen Noel, one of our most interesting players of the year to watch in Anthony Edwards. Um, Jaden McDaniels, one of my favorite defensive players in the league. Uh, Nas Reed, like just a really interesting bench Love Nas in Reed, general. Yeah. And all nobody team guys. Tremendous starting lineup. I, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see how they don't rack up a ton of regular season wins. And then I'm comparing them to other like top teams in the Western conference and okay. The team that, that led the West last regular season is in turmoil in the sun, <laughs> right? The Grizzlies are going to be starting the season without Jaron Jackson, their defensive anchor. The Clippers are working back, you know, Kawhi and Paul George after they missed, you know, in George's case, a large chunk of last season in Kawhi's case, all of last season, they're going to load manage those guys or at least Kawhi. We know that the Talk Warriors- about guys you could pencil in to miss like 20 plus games. Yeah, just just for rest, you know, right, not even right, yeah, yeah. for injury. But like, so I don't think the Clippers are going full gas during the regular season. I think the Warriors maybe take their foot off the gas a bit during the regular season. The Nuggets, the Nuggets are going to be in that mix as well, and I considered them, but I still think you know working Jamal Murray back, it's not going to be like the smoothest transition mm-hmm. for him. I don't think. And as much as you know, Jokic is a regular season wins machine in his own right. I just don't think they have quite the supporting pieces for him to just keep that machine humming in the way that I feel like the Wolves can with all their different pieces working together in harmony. So, yeah, that's how I landed on them as I think this team is going to win, you know, high 50s games and finish with that number one seed because I don't know that the, the other top teams in the West are going to be chasing regular season wins in the way that they are. I mean, I, I can't really dispute anything you said. I don't think they're going to finish with the top seed. But, you know, the the arguments for the Timberwolves that you just laid out, um, I'm all on board with. Now, I will say the most Timberwolves thing would be if they get the number one seed and then lose uh, in the first round to the eight seed. But the way I see it playing out, not losing in the first round, but I think they will probably lose in the second round to a right. team like the Clippers. Right. 
who are the better team, but that just didn't didn't put like have their foot on the gas for 82 games in the regular yeah. season. No, I think that's fair. Uh, I get you know what this is actually a good way for uh, uh, to plug our four part series on the two contending tiers in each conference. Because uh, the fourth installment of that, which was my second tier of the West, went up today, Friday, depending on when you're listening to this, if you read it over the weekend. But the reason this is a good way to plug it is because obviously the Timberwolves were in that second tier for me. And the way we did these series, like these posts, was reasons to believe in these. It ended up being 17 teams that, you know, could convince themselves at the very least they have an outside shot to contend, Three, 16 or 17, reasons to believe in them. And then reasons to doubt them. So it's not even that I'm necessarily doubting the Timberwolves that much, but to play devil's advocate for the purpose of this exercise and to plug our, you know, great four-part series on the wannabe contenders around the league, I'll give you the reasons I put to doubt them in that post and why I probably can't see them being the number one seed. One is that the defense in front of Gobert, although I think obviously the ceiling is much higher now and they were already an improved defensive team last year. I do think the floor is still pretty concerning and it like the defense in front of them isn't exactly foolproof, right? Like Edwards has tremendous defensive upside, but it is still more potential than proven at this point. D'Lo and Cat uh, defensively as a duo obviously leave a lot to be desired. There is a scenario at play where like if those three guys don't really up their game defensively, Rudy could find himself in a, you know, unfortunately familiar spot where he's asked to put out too many fires and is trying to prop up a wannabe contender defensively that isn't actually good enough. Now, obviously, Jaden McDaniels will help with that, but I do see a scenario in which Rudy might still be asked to be too, to do too much defensively if we're talking about floors. And then also, like, if I'm going to find flaws or nitpick, although I guess this isn't as relevant in the regular season, this would be much more of a, a postseason and big picture thing, but the thing that always comes to the forefront when you talk about the Timberwolves and their ultimate ceiling is like the, the town's aggressiveness factor in w- when the stakes are at their highest, when all the chips are down. Now, a lot of that can be mitigated by Anthony Edwards taking the kind of leap that makes him the absolute offensive alpha where you don't have to worry about this as much. But I do still think someone whose team relies on him as much offensively as Carl Anthony Towns does still need to be much more forceful and assertive on a consistent basis in the most important games. Again, probably not an argument against them in terms of getting the number one seed in the regular season, more so for their playoff success. But that's basically it in terms of the reasons to potentially doubt the Timberwolves. And none of them are very ironclad, like even the defense. I was talking about the floor, but the ceiling defensively is actually pretty high for this team. And the cat stuff doesn't really matter in the regular season when you know he's going to put up his numbers and devastatingly efficient too when he doesn't. So I think the Timberwolves are going to win a lot of regular season games. And I think it'd be a really cool story if they end up with the number one seed. Like after, you know, we talked about the Kings drought. Okay, the Timberwolves have made the playoffs now a couple times in the last five or six years, but they haven't won a playoff series in what will be 19 years by the time this spring rolls around. Mm-hmm. So them being in the upper yeah, echelon they've won, of the West, They've won two playoff series in their entire history. Yeah, and they, they were both, both in, the in the same, same year. Yeah. yeah, so it would be a great story if, uh, if your bold prediction comes to fruition. All right, you want my fourth one? Yeah, man. Christian Wood, sixth man of the year. Jordan Poole and Malcolm Brogdon, much safer bets here. For for you know, if anyone's actually betting on it, don't don't use this as betting advice. Wow, this is Wood. Bones Highland erasure. My wow. Guy. Hey, listen, Highland could be in the mix for sure. I think Brogdon and Poole would probably be my safest picks for it. But I do think it's really shaping up for Christian Wood. I've mentioned you know a ton of times now how perfect a pairing I think him and Luca are together, and why Luca's perfect for him as well. Wood's a good 
pick and roll guy and a pick and pop guy who's now going to get the best looks of his career. A guy who already shot 39% from deep on a few attempts per game pre-Luka, who's now going to play with the guy who consistently creates the best three-point looks for teammates. I mean, I, I can't remember which stat company tweeted it out. It was this week, but even just last year, if you look at the top five players uh, in terms of open three-point attempts last season, three of the top five were Mavericks. No coincidence there, you know, what and who is generating that. I think that's going to be huge for Wood. Plus the fact that he's coming off the bench while probably disappointing to him initially, I, I think it means he can feast on lesser yeah. matchups Christian and Wood, he's gonna play christian wood gonna listen to this podcast and it's gonna be the first he ever heard of coming off the bench for the yeah yeah exactly for real i think he can feast on a lot of like bench opposition and bench matchups while mm. also still playing pretty much starters minutes so the numbers will be really high like he's gonna start he's gonna come off the bench in at least more than half the games and qualify as a reserve player for the purpose of the award but he's gonna play enough minutes where the numbers are gonna be there even just again, third time now I'm mentioning the preseason caveat, but still 39 points and 15 rebounds in 44 preseason minutes on 60% shooting, 15 of 25. Also in a contract year, as I mentioned before, I do think the Mavs, even if it is just one year and then they end up overpaying him and he never lives up to it again, I do think for at least this year, the Mavs are going to get the best version of Christian Wood. And I think that's big from a production standpoint. And then finally, a lot of the limitations you can talk about with him, especially in the defensive end, are much less of a factor when you're talking six man of the year, if we're honest. Now, they shouldn't. it shouldn't be less of a factor because it should be about the most impactful reserve. But we know a lot of times how this award goes. And I do think if he puts up the kind of numbers I think he can and will off the Mavs bench, he is going to be the sixth man of the year. It's also just way easier to be a defensive minus if you're right. coming off the bench. Right. And like for to, to not have those defensive deficiencies like derail your team because you are going up against, you know, either bench units or just at least transitional units where you're not going to be liable to get exploited in the same way that you would if you were starting. So yeah, I think that's a good pick in no small part because I totally agree about the the pairing with Luca just because he can do it in any which way, right? Like he can space the floor for Luca, but he can also be a really devastating role man. And I think they can run a really effective two man game. But then also, if they kind of want him to carry some of those lineups with Luca on the bench, where you know they lost Jalen Brunson and there's not really anybody to, I, like Dinwiddie, I guess, but he's not going to pick up the slack completely. Then you have Wood, who can also actually create his own shot to to a reasonable degree. Like he can face up, he can put the ball on the floor, um, and I think as an offensive player, they're. Honestly, like as a as a big man, there are like not a ton of holes in his game offensively. Oh, agreed. So, agreed. Uh, yeah, when we're thinking about six man of the year and the types of players that usually win that award, I feel like that's uh, that's the sweet spot. So right, um, that's that's a solid pick. All right, uh, we have one left each. What is your last bold prediction? All right, Cash, off the top of your head, do you know who? It's actually a tie, but who the youngest? players ever to win defensive player of the year were and how old they were when they won it the youngest yeah i'm gonna say Kawhi leonard's in that mix Kawhi is one of the three okay and sorry and how old they were when they they won it yeah Kawhi, i'm gonna say was maybe like 24 Kawhi was 23 uh okay. so was dwight howard and so was alvin robertson those are the youngest wow. players to win defensive player of the year okay where are you going with this joe wolfon evan mobley is currently 21 Wow. He will still be 21 by the time the season ends. Love it. And I think when that does happen, when the season is over, 21-year-old Evan Mobley will be the youngest ever defensive player of the year. 
He was so unbelievably impressive to me as a rookie. Uh, I thought he had, honestly, a legitimate case. He fell off a little bit toward the end of the year. And when when Jared Allen went out, I feel like that hurt his case a little bit because a lot of what Cleveland was able to do defensively was a result of what those two guys were able to do in tandem. Mm -hmm. But... I I see him as having that defensive player of the year upside, and I think he can actualize it as soon as this season. And I think it's going to be spotlighted even more just given who's defending in front of him. And when we look up midway through the season and the Cavs are like somehow in the top five in defense, despite having Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell defending at the point of attack... And yes, Jared Allen is still going to be a big part of that. And possibly Isaac Okoro will be a big part of that too. I think the guy who is plugging the most holes, who is, you know, not only protecting the rim as, you know, a help defender, a drop defender, um, banging with big centers in the post, possibly taking on, you know, playmaking forward assignments, guarding the likes of Giannis Antetokounmpo, switching out onto the perimeter, doing literally everything that's asked of him and making the Cavs so scheme versatile. We're going to point to Evan Mobley and say, that's the guy who's making it work. And that's the best defensive player in the league. I don't have him as my defensive player of the year, but can't really argue with the, you know, the point you've put forward. And I do think Evan Mobley, Obviously, he's a special young player in general, but especially special uh, on the defensive end. And I do think he is, you know, the type of special defensive talent that can completely prop up an overall team defense that should otherwise be pretty bad, you know, if not awful with two sieves at the point of attack. So again, while he's not my pick, I can definitely see where you're coming from and see how he can end up in the conversation. Because yes, to your point, if the Cavs are near the top of the league in defense, which they very well could be, with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell at the point of attack, then absolutely Mobley's going to get his flowers and you know at least being in the mix for defensive player of the year. Although I do wonder as well, I know Mobley is their most important defensive player, but Jared Allen is also obviously pretty damn good on that end. And I do wonder, you know, the same way we talk about sometimes if two superstars play together, how they can take away and kind of cannibalize each other's MVP votes and candidacy. I do wonder if we could see that with the Cavs with Mobley and Allen. I don't think so, because at the end of the day, you're not going to win defensive player of the year if you're not on a good defensive team. And you're not going to be on a good defensive team if there aren't other good defenders around you. And I think the important thing is, like, we're going to watch the Cavs, and I think we're going to see, yes, Jared Allen is a very good defender, but a more one-dimensional defender, I think, than Evan Mobley. And what he does is is still going to be super vital to what they do, because if they do schematically what they did last year, and try to actually funnel guys toward the rim, run them off the three-point line, and trust their enormous front line to kind of put out fires on the backside then yeah, they're really going to need Jared Allen to be the rim protector he was last year. But Mobley, again, is just going to be doing, I think, a lot more things in order to make their defense work, which is, you know, not not that Jared Allen, Jared Allen is so one-dimensional. Like we saw him switch out onto the perimeter a bunch last year. But for the most part, he's going to be a deep drop defender. He is going to be the kind of center who's playing a one-man zone and 2.9ing and staying as close to the rim as possible. And with Mobley... He can do that, but he can also envelop a ball handler on the perimeter and he can come out to the level of the screen and he can play at the top of a three, two zone. Like there's so many different things and and ways that you can use him that 
uh, I think that versatility is what's going to carry the day for him when when we're trying to parse who the most important defender on the Cavs really is. Fair point. All right, you ready for my last one and the last one to put a bow on this whole thing? Please. So I considered going like big award. I was like, ah, should I just go? Luca is going to win MVP, but that's nowhere near bold enough. And he is actually, I think, is going to win MVP. And then I was like, oh, find like another statistical thing. And I was thinking like, oh, maybe my last bold prediction is going to be like Josh Giddy is going to be like top three in assists or something. But then I was like, you know, you know what I think is a good way to put a bow on our bold predictions, even though this isn't the boldest of predictions, but it would be to just go with my championship pick. Because I think that is a good way to kind of finish the conversation. And it is that the Milwaukee Bucks are going to win their second championship in three seasons. But it has less to do with me thinking the Bucks are like by far the best team in the NBA. And more to do with in this era of unprecedented parity. In what might well be the most wide open championship race in NBA history. The Bucks aren't the best and don't have the highest ceiling to me, but they are the most trustworthy of the teams I think are most likely to hit, like to win the championship or the teams that you can talk about with the highest ceilings. Like the defending champion Warriors. I mean, I've already said that I think one teammate punching another teammate in the face could linger all season. So it'd then be hard for me to be like, bad, they'll be fine. They'll just win again. And it's also just really hard to win two championships in a row. The team they met, in the finals, the Boston Celtics, you know, have got their own drama going on uh, with their head coaching situation. And again, not to say that that's going to completely derail them. I don't think that they're still going to be really good. But if we're talking about a wide open title race where there's so little separation, I am also looking for a team that like has no reason for me to doubt them at the very moment. So Celtics, you're gone. Cut off court trauma. The Suns who finished with the best record last year and made the finals two years ago, we know all about the drama there, whether it's, you know, the at the top with the ownership stuff or DeAndre Ayton not wanting to be there and looking disinterested so far in the preseason. Losing Jay Crowder, we'll see what happens there with the potential trade. But Suns, you're gone. The Nets, who probably have the highest ceiling of any team, don't need to remind you why you shouldn't trust a team banking on the consistent presence of Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and Ben Simmons. Nets, you're gone. Clippers and Nuggets, who I actually would... Right now, if someone had to ask me what the West Finals will be, these are the two teams I see in the West Finals, but too much riding on guys returning from injury. In the case of the Clippers, Kawhi hasn't played more than 60 games in a season in like five or six years now. Paul George has averaged, in terms of per 82 contests, more than 20 games missed per the last like three or four seasons, closer to 30 games actually. And then with the Nuggets, I think Jamal Murray will get back to what he was, but I don't know if he can do that in year one. Michael Porter Jr., like, there's always durability issues there. So there's no guarantee that now because he's back, it's going to be fine. Nuggets, you're gone. Sixers talked about the trust issues with not just Embiid, but Embiid and Harden and that and Doc Rivers and that whole situation there. think they're a great team, but reason for me to be like, no, you're gone. When I go through this long list, and that's not even obviously the, lo- the list of every team that thinks they're a contender, but I keep coming back to the Bucs as a team that I'm almost underwhelmed by in totality. And some of the losses the last couple of years could start adding up. But I also think they're the safest bet of these. Giannis is what and who I trust most out of all these teams and contenders and players on these teams. I think, you know, a full season of Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton, hopefully healthy together, will get them right back in the mix. 
I think they end up finishing with the top seed in the East, despite not necessarily needing to care about the regular season. I think they end up winning the East, and I think they go on to win that second championship in three years. And I will say, I don't know if last hurrah is being very dramatic or too dramatic, but when you start to look at like the ages of Middleton and Holiday and the way injuries have started creeping up, and also a lot of the like asset capital the Bucks have burned to construct the team they have, which good for them, they ended up winning a title, so fine. But if you're talking about projecting forward, they'll be fine because Giannis is there, but ceiling wise when you start to look at like the way the roster is going to start somewhat falling apart in the next couple years the window might not be as wide as people think it is in terms of like immediate contention and i almost do see this year for this specific core as like a sort of last hurrah and i think they're going to win the title in said last hurrah or at least in said made up last hurrah as per me if I was asking you to defend this take, I would just be asking you to defend it as a bold prediction because I think a lot of sports books have the Bucks as the betting favorite to win the championship. So I actually don't, I don't think they do. I think they're like the third or fourth, all right? I, I don't know. I I thought the Celtics and Warriors and Nets actually had I feel like the, the Celtics sort of the uncertainty and turmoil in the last few weeks has maybe knocked them down in a couple of places. But regardless, I understand like picking one team versus the field is always sort of banking on an right. unexpected outcome because even if one team is the odds on favorite, like you're still taking them versus 29 other teams. So I get that. But as I said, though, it's less about being bold as it is more so a nice way to put a bow on our predictions. Yeah. You just wanted to, to have that prediction out there in the ether that you think the Bucks yeah. are going to win. Um, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people are picking the Bucks to win. I think I might've picked them to win as well. I can't remember now who I did pick, but I feel like the reason is that, and and it's funny to say this because if we think back to like two years ago before they won the championship the first time, the Bucks were this team that was shrouded in uncertainty and question marks about, you know, I mean, you can speak to this as well as anybody, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the questions about their postseason viability and their lack of scheme flexibility and maybe their mental makeup and all these like barriers that they couldn't get past. It is not lost on me whatsoever. How ironic it is that me of all people now says the bucks are the most trustworthy. Yeah. I feel like that is why a lot of people are picking them is because there are maybe the fewest question marks about them. That core has been together now for a long time. We've seen them do it. We know what Giannis is, which I think in a lot of people's minds, myself included is like the best player in basketball. So it's just an easy, safe feeling pick, I feel like, which maybe goes against the the spirit of the Bold Predictions episode, but I can't really dispute the rationale behind picking them. Like, they, they do feel like the most trustworthy team, just given the question marks swirling around all the other contenders. I mean, even with the Draymond thing, I feel like the Warriors, they seem pretty trustworthy, and they're... Yeah their formula is tried and true, but it, I don't know, just feels a little boring to pick the same team to, to repeat. And I also think the Western conference is getting stronger. I think it's time for some new blood. I think the nuggets are, I think the nuggets are ready. They're ready. To yeah, I do too. I do too. Um, so to put a bow on the bow that you've put on this, <laughs> I think, uh, I think we might be headed for a bucks nuggets finals. What do you think about that? I can definitely see it. I ended up going Bucks Clippers, but 
I went back and forth on a Clippers Nuggets West final like 38 times. And even in this process of having this conversation, I want to go Nuggets. Tomorrow, I'll want to go Clippers. But for me, it's a toss up right now between the Nuggets and Clippers in a West, a potential West final and one of them meeting and ultimately losing to Milwaukee in the finals. Cool. Cool. So there you go. Don't you, you don't even need to watch the NBA season at this point. Just trust that we have just laid out exactly how things are going to go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, join us in mid-June after yeah. all of this has surely yeah. come to pass and we'll look ahead to 2023-24. All right. So you're asking them to just skip the next eight months of Pound the Rock. What I was going to say is don't bother <laughs> watching the season, but tune in no, twice a week to Pound the Rock and you'll know everything that's going on in addition to knowing what is already going to happen. Throughout no, the no, no. Yeah. I was telling them to skip the season. Not, not the season oh, okay. of Pound the Rock, the season right. of the NBA. Good. Just want to make sure there. Should I get to the fan shout out of the week? Yes. Fan shout out this week goes out to Kim Birch, Kim with an H on Twitter. The handle is Kim Birch Fan, who wrote to us a couple of weeks ago via Twitter saying that they are a huge fan of Pound the Rock. Uh, and they, they also had a question or a potential pod topic for us. We're not going to be able to get to that today. And who knows, we might, like, if, if you know we're looking to come up with a pod episode topic, we could end up getting to this. Kim Birch had asked who we think is the most underrated player or contributor on each team or for each contender, perhaps. Again, uh, not ruling out that we might end up doing a pod on Kim's idea, but right now we're not going to be able to get to that. Still wanted to get you a shout out though. So thank you, Kim Birch, Kim Birch fan for being a loyal listener of Pound the Rock. Also ended that tweet with uh, letting us know well, thanking us for the content, calling us the best NBA pod, best NBA pod, and ending it with two emojis—a heart emoji and a Canadian flag. So, assuming you're somewhere out in the Great White North, so fellow Canucks, thank you for listening. You know, it, people thank us for making the content, but thank you for listening because you listening and you supporting our work uh, across various mediums is the reason we can mm-hmm. make content for you. So, thank you, thanks for being a loyal listener. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners as we head towards another season of Pound the Rock. When we do hope to get back to two episodes a week once the season starts. Next week, no guarantees, but I think once we really get into the swing of things, we'll be back twice a week. Also, uh, exciting news because people had actually asked us about it over you know, the course of time. Make or Miss is coming back. Our old Make or Miss segment, a segment we used to do that is coming back. You can potentially find the first version of it, actually separate from this episode, but on our YouTube channel and across our social channels. But I'd say within the next couple of weeks, you can look forward to Make or Miss, the Make or Miss segment coming back in show as well. Till one of those future episodes, Wolfon, unless you have anything else to add? Certainly not. Then uh, I'll sign off. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.